gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, building Jerusalem. Today I have the pleasure to be meeting with Avraham Leder. Avraham Leder is a Kabbalist, teacher, translator, and scholar. He's the founder of the Matsuraf Academy, a school for the study of the Abelafian prophetic Kabbalah. Avraham Leder, hi. Hi, it's... It's uh, a great honor to have you here. I'm very curious to do about doing this. I wanted to uh, start by asking you about your early life and specifically about the time when you discovered the Abelafian Kabbalah. Um, when I was, I guess, in my late teens, I lived in the United States, in California, and this was in the 1960s. So, um, even though I was studying in a yeshiva, uh, a Jewish Talmudic academy, it was in Los Angeles, and my brother lived in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury district. But in general, in the atmosphere, in the air at that time, we were starting to hear about Buddhism and yoga and body work and breathing and things like this, of which I saw nothing in the Jewish tradition. There was no, I mean, you know, because the government said you had to have sports uh, lessons, so we played basketball. But other than that, like, the body or, you know, was not body-oriented work in any way, and not meditation. It was just the study of Talmud. So I was reading this book by Gershom Sholem, who was a great master in academics of Jewish mysticism, major trends in Jewish mysticism, and there's this chapter there on Abu Lafia. And basically, I mean, from what I understood from what Shalom wrote, Abu Lafia, this 13th century, he called him a mystic. Not sure about that word in his context, but this 13th century luminary, he was doing things that sounded like what we were then calling meditation, yoga, breathing, movement, sound, as a, a spiritual practice unheard of anywhere else in Judaism, basically. Not saying there's not meditative, you know, meditative um, practices in other parts of Judaism other than Abulafia. But this sort of stuff I didn't see anywhere. Plus, it was clear to me he was also talking about altered states of consciousness, which he called prophecy. And that was also something that we were, that was being discovered in the world in the 1960s, for example, with the mass introduction of LSD, for example, with drugs happening that were um, rapidly changing after a few, an hour or two, changing one's consciousness. So he seemed to be talking about that also. So I was curious to read what he said, because I didn't know of a place where they taught this. There wasn't. It doesn't exist. 
So the only thing I could do was to go to the manuscripts and read them and try to understand what he was saying. And so that's what I was doing when I was about, I guess, um, 18 or 19, I was in Jerusalem and in the Hebrew University Library, they had manuscripts of Abu Lafia's writings because it wasn't published. There was a consensus, apparently, among the Kabbalists that not to publish his works in, as a book. So it was only in manuscript form, which obviously made the amount of people who could read it more limited. It's already all his work, not all, but most everything of what he's written has already been published in our lifetime about 15 years ago by a man named Amnon Gross, who should be blessed eternally for this project of his. Um, and so, but up, up until then, that didn't exist. So I was going to the Hebrew University Library, and they have something there called a microfiche, which I don't know if people today even know what that is, but it's some sort of like a metal can container that shows a microfilm of a manuscript. It's like a not really great image of it, and so I was like sitting, you know, and copying it. I was just copying it. And the thing about Abu Lafia is that I didn't understand hardly a word that he said. Even if I tried to read it afterwards, I had no idea what he was saying. But I just copied it. And how long have you been studying him so far? Uh-huh. About, I guess, 47 years or so. And do you understand a bit more now? Yes. Absolutely. A lot more. I still don't understand all of it don't understand everything, but the more I, I yeah, I understand a lot more. I, I'm amazed how much I understand, in fact, since it's really difficult to understand. And uh, one of the things over the past few years that really upped my understanding was beginning to teach it to others. How long have you been teaching now? I think about four or five years. And why did you wait so long before teaching? It's a good question, um, because I do teach other schools of Kabbalah. I have been teaching Zohar and the Lurianic writings and some other things, Sefer Yitzirah, for already, wow, at least 20 years, 20 years plus. So the thing was that when I was young in this yeshiva, this Talmudic academy that I mentioned earlier, so I had a teacher there. and. He was one of the two people I recognize as my teachers, my living teachers. I usually prefer dead teachers to living ones because since they're dead, I don't have to deal with their miserable personalities. So, um, but this teacher was a live one and I honor what he, I mean, I honor him forever for having taught me, taught me Talmud. But he said to me that if you don't, understand the simple meaning of the words being spoken to you before you're beginning to understand what it is for you and things like that. Just simply what is being said, better not talk about it to others. And I didn't feel until a certain point that I understood Abulafia well enough just in the most immediate, simple way to try to give it over to others. And I'm still not to the level I would like to be or that I would demand of myself in other fields. What um, is it that makes him so hard to understand? Abulafia, for him, language is very central. 
And if I was talking before about altered states of consciousness, so the, th the question he might ask is this, what holds this reality, this sort of day-to-day -day reality that we live, what holds it in place? How come it doesn't like dissolve or expand into endless visions of myriad worlds in all possible directions? What holds it in place? And so his answer to this question is in one word, language. Language is what holds reality in place. So, if Abu Lafia has an agenda of expanded consciousness or other states of consciousness other than this daily one, so his way, one of the biggest parts of his way of taking you there is deconstruction of language letting language collapse. So, in his books, when he's writing, the guy's like a thinker, like it's, his mind is going like, you know, a thousand million kilometers a moment. So it's anyway hard to follow his thinking process. But let's say you're doing that, okay? He's like on some idea. What'll happen is he'll, in the middle of explaining the idea, he'll stop at a certain word. Like, let's say he's saying, there's, you know, a general and there's specific. Then all of a sudden he'll stop in the word specific and he'll let that world word collapse into the sounds that make it up, into different ways of arranging the same letters that make up the word specific. And then he'll let that take him to somewhere else entirely, which will take him to more somewhere else entirely. And totally different way of seeing followed by more. And that can go on for a few words, a few lines, or sometimes a few pages in Abu Lafia. And then he'll pick up where he was before in explaining his idea with all the knowledge now added to him by tripping out in so many different directions from that one word that fell apart, that he let collapse. And all this stuff is in the actual manuscripts themselves. Yeah, I mean, there are writings of his that are more coherent, that he does this less, and ones that do it more, but as I read him more and more, I understand that it's worth, always worth making the effort of following him on his, you know, trip, because if you stick with him, and there's just endless to be gleaned from it, I don't know how else to say it, but it does make reading it very difficult. And, you know, I don't even know about explaining it to somebody else. But. You say there was a, a sort of consensus among Kabbalists not to publish Abelafia's works. Is I feel like that might be a, a useful sort of way of understanding the the point of departure between Abelafia's Kabbalah and the rest of the Kabbalistic world. Is there a single point of departure, or were there reasons for that? more complex. Let's say it like this. Abu Lafia's, yeah, you're right. They didn't publish his works. However, it doesn't mean they weren't reading it. They didn't want to. Most Mekubalim, most Kabbalists, over the time, there was, you know, someone later who said something bad about him. But most of them, actually, the big ones, like Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the Ari, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, other ones, they quote him, sometimes not using his name. But they do quote him, and he's like on their book, you know, these are the books you should read list. Definitely. His 
really bad time was when he was alive. The opposition to what he was teaching was mainly when he was alive. After he died, it wasn't terrible, but they did feel, apparently they had a sense that there was something here that they weren't, didn't want to like put out, like, you know, for every eye to look at. I don't know. Do you have any guesses as to what that might be? Hmm. Of course, I mean, you know, because, uh, I mean, for the, let's go back to the root of it. Why did the rabbis, or certain rabbis specifically of Abu Lafia's time, why did they persecute him? Abu Lafia was chased out of some communities. You know, he was made to feel so uncomfortable that he had to leave. And basically, um, the leading Kabbalist and halachic scholar of his time, the Rashba, the Rashba, he wrote um, a responsa against Abu Lafia, said, stay away from this man. He's, he called him, you know, terrible names. He obviously didn't know much about him. I don't know how many how much they actually, I think, you know, they didn't like it that he was calling himself a prophet and saying that everybody could prophesy and it was like a technique. I mean, that was like the, the you know, that was like the what he had heard and that's what like got him upset. I think if he had actually bothered to read Abu Lafia, he would have had a lot more reasons to have wanted to excommunicate, excommunicate him. You know, it would have been a lot worse for Abu Lafia. Because Abu Lafia, he's not... Um, he doesn't recommend for a, a, um, a, an aware person to do anything because, or think anything or believe anything even more so just because somebody else said that that was the case. He, he thinks a person should figure it out for themselves. I mean, he tries to help you figure out how to get your instrument finely tuned so you can discern truth from falsehood and other and accurate from inaccurate and things like this but ultimately you know he does he's not good for authority systems or hierarchies because he wants to cut your dependence not only on, I mean on other human beings but even on your own habits so you know for people who are trying to promote and maintain a religion and you know rabbis and followers and things like this and even his idea like you can experience God directly just like the people did at Sinai I mean you know so this isn't going to be so popular with an establishment I mean it could, and to make things worse to make matters worse he also said and I am the Messiah <laughs> you know so you can imagine what trouble he got himself in so he said I am a prophet Everyone can prophesize, I am the Messiah. And everybody can be anointed. Can be anointed? Messiah means the anointed one. And he says, I am the Messiah, and everybody can be a Messiah. I am the anointed one, and everybody can be an anointed one if they want to do some serious work. So it sounds like he's using this term in a way that's very different from how it's normally used. That's right, absolutely. In fact, I call him, and he called himself, he is Mashiach Hashem the Mashiach of the name, or the Mashiach of language. He has come to redeem language. He is Mashiach Hashem, Mashiach of the name, Mashiach of the word. He has come to redeem language. What does that mean, to redeem language? What I was saying before, to let language take us to a place which is superhuman, 
take us to our next state of evolution. Because a big part, if I said for Abulafia, um, language is so important, so a really major thing for him is, okay, if you believe language is important, then think about the name of God. What letters, what sounds, what combinations did the masters of language choose to express what we call God? And by chanting that in different, you know, techniques and ways, you are calling on what we would call God, which means a higher consciousness, a general consciousness rather than individual, specific, a me consciousness, prophetic consciousness, next stage of evolution, whatever you want to call it. So by calling the name, you are like just, if I want to call you, if you're sleeping and I want to wake you up, I'd say, yes, yes, you know, and then you know your name, so you would, might respond if that has meaning for you, yes. And so the same thing, I call on the, what we call God, but I call on the higher state to come to me, to be, or for me to be part of it, or for me to be there for at least as long as I'm doing it. So this is, this is sort of analogies to uh, like the Kirtan of the East or the Zikr of, of Islam? Except for one thing, because I've, I've, I've been at both of that. Um, they're doing it in a very, um, like also repetitious, but sort of quick way, like a, a sort of, ex- it sort of fans ecstasy. And Abu Lafia, in this thing, is more like yoga. Like, you know, it's like doing Om or something like that. You're doing one syllable, and you're taking a breath, a slow breath, then you're doing another syllable. It's not like Allah, 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 and doing that, you know, boom, 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 like, and walking in a circle, whatever, or, you know, or like these tunes that are very um, evoking of a state. It's more, it's sort of measured, you know? That's why, you know, they call in the academic research, they call him uh, ecstatic Kabbalah. That's, who, you know, Abu Lafia, the founder either of prophetic Kabbalah or ecstatic Kabbalah. And I don't think it's a great name exactly for what he's doing. Yeah, you might get in what you'd call an ecstatic state, you know, or in a, in a state where, you know, this reality is not what you're seeing. So that could happen, but there's also something very grounded at the same time in what he's doing, which people have noticed less. I mean, I say that because I've practiced it, and that's the case. So, this, this character of Rama Balafia is fascinating, and I'm, I'm hearing bits and pieces about his life here. Could you sort of give a, a rough overview of, of how he lived and what he was about? Yeah, um, yeah, because he writes, he writes, in his writings, he mixes in personal biography here and there. So we actually know not a small amount. He was born in Aragon in Spain, and he was basically traveling all his life. He was in Israel, he was in Greece, he was, I think, in Turkey, he was all over Spain, Italy, Barcelona, of course, Catalonia, we should say now, not Spain. And um, Greece, I said, yeah, he was like moving around. He was moving around most of his life. And um, 
when he was a young man, he studied the Bible with his father. And like, I guess, any intelligent young man of his time, at a certain point, he studied the sciences, the sciences and philosophy. And, you know, he studied Talmud in the Jewish studies. But, you know, the sciences, he was learning mathematics and astronomy and like whatever a respectable like scholar would be doing at the time. And at a certain point, he started studying Sefer Yitzirah, okay, which is this very, very um, sort of most core root book of, if there's a word like the Kabbalah, so Sefer Yitzirah is sort of like right at the root of it. So, so he, was, he began to study that, and the other one he was studying was the Rambam, Maimonides. Because he, for Rabulafia, I always say if Rabulafia had to go to an island and he had to take two books with him, and let's assume that the Bible he knows by heart, so the two books he's going to take will be Rambam, the Maimonides, his Guide to the Perplexed, and Sefer Yitzirah, the book I was talking about before. Because the Rambam, Rabulafia, he, he wants to get things as clear as possible. And there is no mind clearer than that of the Rambam. Nobody like him. And also, Abulafia's understanding of what we're talking about um, when we're talking about God is totally that of the Rambam, which is forget myth, forget image. Don't like that stuff at all. You know, clean your mind of it. Uh, the Rambam, in that sense, he's like Zen for me. Um, the Rambam is you have this image, Get rid of it. A new image has come, wonderful. Stick, be with that. Then get rid of it. Shmilata toarim, what it's called, like negating all descriptions. So whatever idea or description comes up of what we want to call God, get rid of it. I say get rid of the name God also because not a good name. But it, it maybe in English it's better than Hebrew, which is terrible, but it's a whole other thing. Why? So the young Rama Balafia discovers... Sefi Yitzirah, which is the foundational Kabbalistic work, and Rambam, and that changes his life. Because also Rambam talks about prophecy. Rambam is, says very clearly that prophecy is a human potential that can be cultivated. Rambam says this clearly. Unlike Abu Lafia, he does not provide a method for attaining it. But, he says very clearly, it's not just something in the storybooks that was happening, you know, 3,000 years ago or whatever. It is a human capacity, potential, that can be developed, cultivated. That's what the Rambam says. So, Abedavi said, right, I agree. I just need to figure out how to do that. And so, he was reading, obviously, what's called Hasidut Ashkenaz, like Ashkenazi Hasidim. It was a certain school of Kabbalah. And he had some uh, human teachers also that taught him stuff. He mentions them, um, other than just like the Rambam and Sefer Yitzirah. And then at a certain point, I guess, he began, he began developing his system and he began having prophetic visions. You know, his, it worked. What kind of prophetic visions? Um, um, describing 
the nature of reality, of being human, of the war that is waged, of the enlightenment that can come, and evolution, things like that. Okay, these are, these are broad things. Can you give me an example of a specific vision that he, he writes about in his works? I, I don't, I mean, besides his works that I was talking about before when you asked me about it, mm -hmm. Abulafia says he wrote, and I can't remember now if it's 22 or 26 books of what I would call prophetic poetry, which are his visions, okay? We have one of them in its entirety. We don't have any others. We have fragments of others in some other books of his. I'm not going to get into that now. So we have one book of his prophetic poetry. And that is his way of telling in language what his vision is. So I don't really, I can't really say it. I mean, you know, I'd rather, because it would just not do justice to his own way of expressing it. Right. So... I, it seems from this that it's uh, there's a similarity between him and the 19th century English poet William Blake in that their prophecy and their poetry seem intimately linked. Yes, yes. The only thing is Blake is, you know, he loves the pictures and the images. And Abulafia being Maimonides, he always wants to get beyond images and pictures, like to their, you know, simple being in a certain way. You know, you'll see that just like get beyond that. But is his poetry also non-imagistic? That's the thing. It there are it is image, but he makes it very clear that the image that he's he wants he uses images in order to point to what is beyond image, and it's clear that he's doing that all the time. Right. So, so the young Avrama Balafia, he he's studying these Kabbalistic works. He finds this assertion in Rambam that uh, prophecy is something that can be developed in an individual. He decides to somehow create, dis rediscover these techniques, and then they work, and so he actually becomes a prophet. And then, then he starts walking into Jewish communities and saying, I'm a prophet. Um, first of all, apparently, yes. He did do that, you know, and, but he got himself some students, some of them very respected students, not just, you know, like somebody says, oh, wow, you know, like, you know, uh, he got himself some good students. The famous Kabbalist Yosef Trikatilia was one of his students. Abu Lafia in one of his books has a list of a lot of his students, and unfortunately he was disappointed in most of them. But um, but uh, he was but he was very devoted to his students for sure, but um, and there were students who were with him and then left him like this one Chikatilia they left him so basically his travels were about finding people to um, share his discoveries with, and a very unique thing about him is that he also shared his teachings with non-Jewish people, which was unusual for a Jewish Kabbalist, you know. Now, there's a thing he writes about in one of his prophetic books that he even was planning to go see the Pope. And apparently, it's, I mean, the dates 
jive historically with who was the Pope then and whatever. So it's backed up historically. I never, with Abu Lafia, sometimes it's hard to know if he's describing something that actually took place in an external reality or it was something he was going through in his internal reality. But it does seem, although obviously it was mainly about his internal meaning for it, it does seem he wanted to go to talk to the Pope. It didn't happen. The Pope died on the day that he was planning to go see him. And so, um, which Abu Lafia thought, you know, he was like saved or delivered because he thought maybe if he goes and see the Pope and, you know, speaks with him, he thought that he, he might, they might decide to kill him, the Christian, the Catholic Church. He definitely thought that was a possibility, but he decided he's going to talk to the Pope anyway. And I think he wanted to talk to the Pope about the name of God, I'm pretty sure. I, I mean, I, you know, I have a, my reasons for thinking that. Talk to the Pope about the name of God. Yeah, I think that's what he wanted to discuss with him. Anyway, he ended up in a monastery for a month, a Jesuit monastery. Um, he calls them the Little Brothers. And um, so right after that, he was sort of, I think they were like, I mean, he was like a, a guest who couldn't say, I'm leaving tomorrow, you know, from the monastery. They were like checking him out after this scene. That's one story. And then I had a, I heard from somebody an incredible story. Um, a friend of mine, a young woman, she was on a, she went on a trip to Malta, okay? Malta is just like a set of three islands or something. And there's an island, one of the three islands that's not so inhabited of Malta, it's called Komita. And um, so this island Komita, Komito, I'm probably not saying exactly right. So she had a tour guide there, she was with a group, and the tour guide said, you know, he said like, says that island, you see, it's called Komita. He says, in my village, he lived in some village there, says we have a, a legend that about 700 years ago, there was a Jewish scholar who lived on this island, and the head of the church in, or, you know, in his town used to take the boat to this island, Komito, and he used to study with this man. And, he st and the, the tradition was that this, I guess, priest said, or bishop or whatever he was, he said, that Jew, he, he knew more than anybody that I've ever met in the church. And when my friend heard the guy say this, she thought right away, she knew Abu Lafia lived 700 years ago and that he had been in Malta. And so she thought right away that it was probably Abu Lafia. And she told me this story. And in fact, Abu Lafia was on this island. He writes about it in his poetry, that he was on this island, Komito. He said a very, very like low point time in his life. He said, I was living then days that I had no passion for. I, I didn't, like, find anything uh, that I wanted in them in these days. I was living then days that I had no passion for. Yeah, yamim she'en libehem chefetz. Yeah. And he was on that island, which he was sort of like an exile, because I guess he had to, like, you know, I guess, like, it was getting really hot, so he had to, like, sort of go into, you know, sort of pretty much, uh, like, nobody else was living on that island. So, so this was during the time when he was upsetting the Jews or upsetting the Catholics? There's no, um, there's no record of him upsetting Catholics or Muslims, just Jews. Wait, I thought he was at a Jesuit monastery. Ah, right, right, Nahon. Because, yeah, he didn't really upset, they didn't, they didn't, apparently, we don't know, 
they didn't really know what to think of him. So they were sort of probably checking him out. But he was, I think, I mean, he doesn't say that it was like unpleasant in any way or they were making him trouble. I think they were just, he was probably talking with them and they were checking him out. The ones he has trouble with are some Jewish rabbis. How did he end up in this monastery then? Because apparently since he was trying to get in to see the Pope and the Pope died and the whole scene, they, and you don't, you never know, like if you're like in the Catholic, you never know what these Jews might come up with, you know, and what might be going on with them. And I mean, they have history, let's not forget, with the Jew. And so, um, so they were sort of checking him out. But for Abu Lafi, it was probably perfect because, as I said, he was very curious about Christian um, symbolism and theology and things like that. So I'm sure that they probably got into discussions. And in other places, he mentions his debates and dialogues with non-Jewish people. And, you know, he always, like, of course, convinces him that he's like, you know, he knows more than anybody around. And so... And he called these Jesuits his little brothers? I think that's one of their names. In um, They're called the little brothers. It's one of their names in general. He's translating something from the language. Right. But he's talk, so he doesn't talk about them in a negative way in any, in any fashion. Okay, so he's, he's living this life where he shows up in a, in a new place, tells everyone he's a prophet, tells everyone he's a messiah, gets run out of town, and just rinse and repeat. Right, right. So when he says, when he claims to be the messiah, that's, he's under, it, it seems to me like he's understanding that term very differently from how it's usually understood. Right. He's, he's basically talking about um, a state of consciousness. He's talking about a state of consciousness, like he could also call it prophetic state of consciousness. He's talking about a state of consciousness that can be attained and achieved. That's what he means. However, I, I mean, I should be clear that he also said, I am the Messiah. But he meant... I mean, he also explained that he means he is the teacher of this. He has discovered a method of attaining messianic consciousness and describing or talking about it. And the fact that he's speaking about him makes him the Messiah. I mean, he has embodied that. He's, he's not, he's not, it's not like his ego. It's not really, he's not saying like, worship me. Or he's not saying like Shabtai Tzvi, another Messiah that we had, that it's about my person. When he talks about himself, he actually talks very humbly. He talks about himself not in an inflated way at all. You know, and he laughs at himself and he's very... But when he's talking about what's important for him and what he thinks is worth living as a human being for, then he's embodied as the Messiah of all that, because he is bringing that liberation to human beings. So to him, messianic being is a, is a proper way of being in the world? Mm -hmm. Or a potential that a human being could access. And to, his, and to him, he felt he was accessing that potential? Yeah. Although, again, he's very honest, he's very sincere. And another, like I said before about this time that he was obviously feeling very low. And another time he says, for years I haven't had any, nothing is working, you know, I haven't yet a prophetic experience, you know. So he's very honest in that, so he's very almost brutally honest. Um, you know, it's no, like, well, I'm, an, I'm enlightened, I'm the Messiah now. It's not that at all. 
but it's it's something that you can experience, you know, or that's what he says. Okay, this idea is I'm finding it really interesting, but I also feel like I don't quite have it uh, all understood yet. So to him, was, it's okay. Neither do I. <laughs> well, um, it, if you don't understand it, then I guess we better may as well just pack up. But I, I mean, just to the extent that that you do understand it, it's does he see prophetic? states of consciousness and messianic states of consciousness is different things or the same thing? Pretty much the same thing. Same thing. Same thing. He calls the prophet, the Mashiach, the Kohen. The, the Kohen? The priest. Absolutely. Those are the same words said, in him? Huh? Those are, like, those are interchangeable terms? Yeah. You're saying Abulafia says... Yeah, he says, I'm a Kohen, I'm a priest from the side of my mother... I am a Levi, a Levite, from the side of my wife, and I am a Yisrael from myself. <laughs> you know, he's very, he's very, he's very flexible. He doesn't stay in any, like a, a word holds a meaning. He doesn't stay in the accepted meaning of a word. So for him, like Kohen, which we understand to me being meaning as you were born to that tribe. Your father was a Kohen, that's how we understand that. But he can understand a priest as meaning a prophet or a messiah. And then you're like a priest because a priest is like a, a, the highest, you know, caste. So if it's the highest, it's the prophet, it's the messiah. It's the man of expanded consciousness. And you, um, wait, so, so you say his, he says, I was a, I'm a Kohen for my mother and a Levite for my wife. This is the first I'm hearing of him having a wife. Now, he mentions her in another place also. He had a wife. You know, he definitely had a wife. I mean, I have no, he doesn't, I have no idea. Like, oh, I wonder about this. Was, was she traveling with him, you know? Children, he talks about children in general. I don't think there's any place he mentions his children, but there, there are people I actually met in your country. I met, not in your country, but a, a landsman someone from your country who was visiting Israel, who told him, I asked him, what is your name, sir? And he said, Avraham Abulafia. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I asked him, like, do you know anything about why you have that name? He said, yeah. They told me, I don't know, there was somebody in our family who was like a Kabbalist, or I don't know. He didn't really know much, but that was his name. And there's other people, I think, someone who financed the publishing of his books, has that they were from his family, so I guess he, he probably had children. And he he also worked uh, with non-Jews, interacted a lot with non-Jews. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Why why was that important to him? Why was that important to him? Look, he's sort of ambivalent about it. He, he's, I mean, he definitely feels like the Hebrew language, wow, but then he feels like all languages could be Hebrew, you know. Then and he feels like. The Jewish people, wow, absolutely unique, chosen. But then he feels like if a person developed their potential, anybody could be the chosen people or even Jewish, he says, in a certain place. So he has like both sides. I think there's something about his teaching that um, does speak a certain, certain universalism. He also, he writes words from other languages like Latin or Greek 
um, or Spanish, I think, also, in Hebrew letters. And he feels like, because he says, all languages can be melted down into one language. You and know? then he applies his, his standard Kabbalistic techniques to the Exactly. Or using his standard Kabbalistic deconstructionist of language techniques, let's say he'll take some Hebrew word and he'll rearrange the letters and it'll say Dominus or something like that, and he'll say, wow, look at this, you know. So he's not only making other Hebrew words. If a word in another language comes up, he's even happier. Right. So he'll he'll be he'll be happily plugging away at, at a Hebrew word and he'll yes. come up with a Latin word and then he'll he'll be excited about that. Exactly. And he'll see where that takes him. So this is something that I'm I'm trying to understand about um, about Kabbalists in general. And I suppose like Abelafi in a sense is like the apex of this. It's, so when he's rearranging a, a word and he finds that it, sure, it can become another word, does he see that as a um, as a, as an impetus towards uh, more poetic or prophetic thought, or does he see that as something that is baked into the word, something that's metaphysically significant in itself? No, I think it's more like the first that you said, because it's it's not. It's not so much significant in itself for him because it's very it's in constant flux. It's always changing every moment. And it's just sort of a way of training your consciousness to be in constant flux and like to instead of holding on to what you knew a second before or was experiencing then, which gives us a sense of comfort and security and it's like, no, <laughs> you know, like, let's just, what is it now? You know, and be and hold on to that for as long as you can hold on to it before that transmutes into the next thing itself, just like the words. Okay, so I can see, uh, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that at the time when you first discovered him, um, yoga was coming in, into fashion and LSD. The, uh, in the Western world, yes. Right, so the, the description you have of reality constantly shifting and breaking apart, that sounds a lot like people's experiences on LSD. For sure. Is that something that is a similarity in, in practice that you've noticed between the... It's a good question, you know, because to be honest, I've never with Abu Lafia had as intense experience as I have with psychotropic drugs. So... Um, and so it could be that I don't practice enough or I'm not, you know, maybe I'm too, I don't let go, or I don't know what. It could be, in other words, for personal reasons of my individual. Or it could be that um, I wonder, I wonder what Abu Lafia, let's say Abu Lafia lived in our time. And they told him, there's LSD, there's ayahuasca, there's, you know, there's mushrooms, there's this, there's, why didn't you just do that? A lot less time you have to devote to it and you know you go straight there and I, I seriously wonder what he might have thought about this um, um, it's an interesting question I think and I'm not you know I'm not I haven't really necessarily I don't have a necessary conclusion about this but I do think also from my personal experience 
that there is beyond like just the high experiences themselves, that when you do a practice, that there's something that's internalized that affects even your daily life, not just the times that you've set aside for letting go of all of this, but that works itself into like your daily reality. It's, it becomes more ingrained when you do a practice and then begins to affect not just you know, when you're having a, a, an experience like that, which is good to set aside times for such a thing, but also in your daily living. That I can say, I, you know, I experience from doing this, this Abulafya. Cool. So you've just founded a new uh, academy. This is a long-time ambition of yours, to found a prophetic academy. Mazref, Matsref, Matsref, yes. It's from the Hebrew Tsrefa to forge. Yes, to forge and to and to um, deconstruct and reconstruct words. The word Tseruf is a major technique in Abulafia, what I was talking about before. The name of it is Tseruf. So this word means the for this sort of the name of this academy is the um, alchemical furnace of the deconstruction and reconstruction of language and human consciousness. That's the, that's the name of the academy? That's sort of what this Hebrew word means. Okay. Sref, you know? I, I, I figured that would be a bit tricky to get on business cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As it is, I made it so long. Like, when we were doing this, Matsref, this academy is under the auspices of a wonderful umbrella called Zohar Chai. It's sort of a, a school for the study of mainly Zohar, Kabbalah, but so I gave them the whole long name, you know, Academy for the Prophets, uh, study of the prophetic consciousness teachings of Avraham Abulafia of blessed memory in Hebrew. And so the one um, responsible for the graphics said to me, could you at least like take out the of blessed memory part from the title? And I said, no. So yeah, it's a sort of long name. And what's your aspiration with this new academy? Nice question for me. Um, my dream is that I would like to see people actually um, become familiar with Abulafia's system, his practice, his technique, his techniques, and his thought, his ideas. And I would like for them to use it in many different fields. There's almost nothing I hear from all sorts of different fields of human endeavor that I don't identify a dialogue with Abulafia. And this is like, I'm talking about art, poetry, computer sciences, biophysics, um, uh, uh, philosophy of language, of course, uh, study of consciousness, astronomy, the universe in that sense. I would love for people from different disciplines to come and study Abulafia and then to, I mean, there's another funny thing about Abulafia, okay? There's this side I've been talking about till now, which is very, like, complicated and complex and daunting and, you know, the whole thing. Then there's the other extreme he has also, because right now in the world, there's a certain buzz about Abulafia. People who can't read his books, but they're maybe reading like the academic research on Abulafia, like Moshe Idel, who's a great professor of Abulafia. They're reading his books, and they're, they feel like Abulafia is their inspiration. 
you know, there's, in Brazil there's a group. In Paris, apparently, there was a play about him. The, the Vatican had his books translated into Latin. I, need, I want to connect with that at some point. There's like, he's like a, a sort of inspiration or visionary figure for people who have no real idea of what he's about. So, there's that other side here also. But I don't remember what you asked me, why that reminded me of this. I was asking about your aspirations. Ah, right. So uh, you were asking me about like what I hope for for the school exactly. So I would like the people studying here in Israel to, you know, to I would hope for a dialogue and maybe also with other religions and whatever to come out of this um, study, intense study of Abu Laf, yeah? And another aspect of this school is like what I'm saying now. It has an international aspect. Because Abu Lafia, I feel, I intuit, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but it does seem to be the case, has now some place in the world. And um, not just in Israel, where this base is for me. So, And I've actually already taught Abu Lafia in some very different than Jerusalem frameworks. Well, is uh, Jerusalem another word that gets deconstructed a lot in the Appalachian? Absolutely, of course. Of course. Jerusalem, it's, it's Yerushalayim. It's Rio Shalem. It's the perfect 216. 216 is the 72, the name of 72 times 3, because that's how the name is constructed. I'm obviously not going to get into this, but this is like the one of the two basic um, Abu Lafian uh, calling of the name techniques is uh, of the name of the seven of the name of seventy two, and the name of seventy two it's seventy two groupings of three letters, so three letters three times seventy two is two hundred and sixteen. The word Jerusalem in Hebrew is Rio Shalem, a perfect two hundred and sixteen. So it's a perfect expression of whatever this name is about, which is part of what we study in Abu Dhafia. So it's a, it's a kind of theoretical or, or idealized perfection? It's, um, it's not theoretical and it's not idealized because it's experience. That's the thing about Abu Dhafia. Although he's full of ideas and he speaks in philosophical, philosophical language, he wants you to experience, so it's about experiencing it, this completion, or this sense of combination of opposites, or how things go in different directions simultaneously, or whatever that name is about. Okay, so deconstructing and reforging the terms however you like, what is your vision of a better Jerusalem? Um, to, to be perfectly honest, uh, um, it's hard for me to imagine anything better than what it is now. I'm so, um, you know, I have historical perspectives, so maybe my expectations aren't as high as some other people. So, you know, but I, I, I mean, just because when you say Jerusalem, it sounds like Jerusalem to me, the, where I am at this very moment. And I, it's hard for me to imagine better, honestly. Let's, let's take the, uh, the question, apocabalistic notch. What is your uh, what is your vision of a better Yerushalayim? Mm. Um, again, look, 
even if we're talking mysticism and Kabbalah and all this sort of stuff, it's obviously most important that people should behave in a you know, better fashion towards each other. But if we're not going to talk on that level, um, it's basically um, that making it a, or a, offering the possibility for uh, more people to be able to access more of their potential if they're interested in doing so. Okay, and just to uh, take us out today, I'd love to hear um, one of these techniques. We were discussing a bit before the interview um, some of the techniques you're hoping to teach people in your academy uh, that they can take into their daily lives and use to examine themselves and to augment their consciousnesses in that way. Right, so, I'll, I'll, yeah, that's something that basically I've discovered recently, rereading and rereading these books a lot, that Abulafia has some, besides like the techniques to go into a prophetic, higher, altered state of consciousness, he has some techniques for like dealing with living life and getting to know yourself. So I'll give a relatively simple example, uh, because Abulafia speaks in prophetic language. So he talks about the different kingdoms or nations, and he talks about how they're often at war with each other, and he talks about how they have different agendas that each of them promote, which often will cause you know friction between them, and this one having to be violent towards the other one, or being getting its way by just being more uh, powerful, stronger. And um, then he talks about the king or the leopard who will appear and come and start, he conquers all the different nations. And um, actually then, and they don't like it at all at first, they don't like this new young king and the leopard, and they, um, but if he manages to be persistent and hold on to it, Eventually, he sort of imposes his kingdom upon them, upon all these nations. And then they began, begin to actually work. Uh, he makes, you know, each one sort of expresses their own best quality, whatever that might be. And, you know, he makes order, this king, this new young king, so that it all works together for the betterment of this whole, the whole, okay? Rather than all the different parts, just promoting their own agenda. So that's like the language, but it's very transparent. And of course, he's telling us also, basically, every one of us has these, na these nations and kings are our different propensities or within ourselves or qualities or characteristics, or as Abulafia says, limbs. He actually identifies it with different parts of the physical body. They have different agendas, the liver, the heart, whatever, but... I mean, he says it in different languages, either through the, or uh, psychological traits, you know. I can be Mr. Nice Guy sometimes, but I'm Mr. Frustrated also, and I'm also Mr. Megalomania also, and I could give you a list of all the different nations, you know, that exist in me. So, part of Abulafia's work is, first of all, identifying and naming, I would say, this is more my sort of, uh, you know, working out of it, naming the different nations. 
identifying them, seeing during the day or waking time, and also, of course, in dreams, like who's around when and how they work and what their agenda seems to be, but also, besides observing that, which is nice, creating or giving birth to the king, to the leopard. who he says, in this leopard, he said, he's a killer. He's, he's, um, he calls him Katlan. Katlan is like, the, he's a killer, this new king, this leopard. He has to use a lot of force to make order in all this confusion, apparently. So, basically, he's, you know, that, it's not my development already, he's, you know, his techniques are also geared towards um, developing that new young king um, who's going to eventually rule over all the nations. Who is, that's another definition of Abu Lafia, of the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. You know, you could say higher self, but actually, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not bad, it's, but it's, it's a little different, the nuance of it here. Uh, okay. So that's like a technique. So how would, how would you recommend people give birth to their own inner leopard? Right. So basically, Abu Lafia's technique is, part of it is geared towards, let me say, try to say this, you know, in short and clearly. This is, so most of the time, I experience reality as me who lives inside this skin experiencing the reality that is outside of me sort of looking in. So Abulafia has exercises for you to sort of put yourself on the other side of yourself looking in. Like I'm inside myself looking out. So he tries to move your consciousness to outside of you looking in at you. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm being clear. I hope I'm making some sense. Is this in a metaphorical sense? or like No, no, no. It's actually, no, it's not metaphorical. It's actually you, you, um, you practice, you exercise, like trying to shift your consciousness out of yourself looking in. You even like talk to yourself or better if the sound comes up of its own, but you, you like, sort of like a ventriloquist, you know, they can throw their voice or whatever, so you're supposed to throw your consciousness like outside of yourself. I call it the other one. That's what I've called it. The other one. Yeah. Okay, so if someone hears this and says, I have no idea how to throw my consciousness out of my body, how would you recommend getting started? I was, I mean, I can't, I mean, it's like a ex, it's like something you have to practice. You, you know, Abulafia has like techniques for it. I mean, he has you like uh, making, you know, doing it through voice, for example. He has people doing it through voice. You, you speak, you speak, the you who lives inside the skin, and then you let the, the other one who's outside speak with, even though you're giving it your voice. I don't know if, I, but like that's one of his exercises to do it. I mean, you work at it, and it began he, from a few different um, directions. And it begins, it does begin at a certain point to uh, coalesce or to gel as a, another force to be reckoned with in this thing that's called me. So someone could take these uh, 
this this practice of talk trying to talk uh, as if addressing someone outside of himself, and then then attempt to just let whatever that externalization is use use their voice to respond to that and then carry on a conversation. Yes, but you can't. I mean, again, I mean, I'm just trying to explain it, but. It's like done in a prophetic state. You're, you're supposed to be in a prophetic state when you're doing that. This is after you might have spent time like deconstructing language for a half an hour to your like brain is like gone already. So you've done things before that. And then you start breathing and making sound and movement. And then with worked into that, you might start doing what I just described. So it's a whole, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a work. It's you know like training. It's a, like working out. It's you have to keep at it. Right. Okay. So obviously you can't give us the entirety of the teaching here, but in terms of just something that someone listening to this could take home with them and, and practice, is there something simple or basic that you could share? Um, you know, it's very basic, and I don't even know if it would qualify for what you've done, but I mentioned at the beginning of our talk uh, about the name of God, and I said that, you know, a lot of them are problematic. So, Amalafia says that too. God is like a name of the um, genre. It's like a genre name. It's not like the name of the divine. So what is the name? For Amalafia, it's yud heh vav which I can say, Havaya. Havaya is the Hebrew word that means being. Abalafia says in a few places, what is being? Being is reality. That is the Hebrew name for what we call in English, God. Being. Being, which is reality. And so, as an exercise, I could, a very simple one, maybe accessible, is I could... Uh, suggest to people that whenever in their spoken or thinking language they use the word God to replace it with being and see what happens. Just to give an example, I could say and be very happy to say to you, I do not believe in God. Um, if I say I do not believe in being, it's a little more complicated. It's definitely changes something that's interesting to notice and other usages of God. So I maybe would suggest that as an exercise person might try. Just whenever you hear or speak the name God, replace it with being and then see where that goes. Thank you very much, Avram. It's been a real pleasure having you here today. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you. Thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.